Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 23, The Siege of Rome. One quick correction from last time. Listener Tim points out that the Corpus Juris Civilis translates as the body of civil law, not the code of civil law. Thank you for your vigilance, something we will hear a lot more about today. Two episodes ago, Justinian brought North Africa back into the empire. The campaign confounded expectations by completely destroying the Vandals in such a short space of time. The emperor was now in no doubt that it was his destiny to restore the western half of the Roman Empire. The next target was Italy. The Aryan Ostrogoths were ruling the Catholic Italians, and all Justinian needed was an excuse to invade. Only a year after the African campaign, the pretext arrived. You'll recall from episode 18 that the situation in Ravenna was precarious. Theodoric the Great had left the kingdom to his Roman-educated daughter Amalasuntha as regent for her young son Athalaric. She'd made a deal with Justinian for safe harbour should she need to flee, but had so far clung to the reins of power. Amalasuntha was not popular amongst the majority of Gothic nobles who felt she was a poor influence on her son. They had taken him away from the classroom to teach him more manly pursuits, like killing and drinking. In October 534, this diet of debauchery overwhelmed the 18-year-old prince, and he died. His mother had seen this sad day coming and had considered retiring to Constantinople. However, the allure of power proved too much, and she attempted to continue ruling. As a woman with no son and no husband, she badly needed a male consort, and turned to the last male relative of Theodoric's house, her cousin Theodahad. Like his cousin, Theodahad was no warrior, and had instead spent his time in Italy greedily gobbling up most of Tuscany. So renowned were his acquisitions of land that it was said of him that he considered it a misfortune to have a neighbour. But with no one else to turn to, Amalasuntha proposed that they share sovereignty. Theodahad would enjoy the power and prestige of kingship, but with none of the hassle of administration which she would keep for herself. Theodahad readily agreed, but had no love for his cousin 
and brought her enemies into his camp. In April 535, he had her imprisoned, and then soon after, strangled to death. Theodahad did not want war with Byzantium, so it's slightly odd that he blundered into the same error that Gallimer had made when he killed Hilderic. Now Justinian had a legitimate reason to invade Italy, seeing as how its legitimate ruler had just been murdered. Amalasuntha's enemies presumably put pressure on the new king, and there is even evidence that the Empress Theodora may have encouraged the murder, though to explore all the possible motives takes us down a murky path. Whatever the true reason, Justinian had exactly what he was looking for. Theodahad attempted to claim he was innocent of any wrongdoing in a letter which he gave to the respected senator Liberius. We've met Liberius before because he served as Praetorian prefect for Theodoric, and even before that, for Odoacer. Since we last saw him, he was put in charge of southern Gaul, a very important role as it connected Visigothic Spain to Ostrogothic Italy. Liberius was a consummate survivor, highly thought of by every master he served, and his timing was exquisite as he chose this moment to turn traitor, inform Justinian's ambassadors what Theodahad had actually done, and was warmly welcomed in Constantinople as a result. I know it might seem odd that I am keeping track of a career bureaucrat, but it will lead to a good punchline eventually. The emperor had been on high alert since news of Athalaric's failing health had reached him. He was busily preparing for war and now gave the go-ahead. Mundus, the Gepid prince, led the army of Illyricum into Dalmatia, modern Croatia, and occupied the city of Salona, which gave the army control of the land leading into Italy. Meanwhile, Belisarius was dispatched by fleet to take control of Sicily. There was little resistance from the small Gothic garrisons on the island until the fleet reached Panormus, modern Palermo. The Goths locked the gates and prepared to resist. But Belisarius, with characteristic inventiveness, pushed the fleet into the unguarded harbour. The masts of the ships now actually rose higher than the town walls. He sent men up the masts, where they could shoot down on the Goths defending the walls, and soon the town capitulated. News of the fall of Sicily seriously alarmed Theodahad, and worse was to come when he heard that Justinian had sent gifts to the Frankish kings, encouraging them to encroach on Gothic land. The Gothic king met with imperial ambassadors and entered serious negotiations to hand over Italy in exchange for a well-paid position in Constantinople. Belisarius received instructions that once the deal was struck, he was to take over the country. It seemed like Justinian was about to do one better than Africa and reclaim Italy without spilling any blood. But it was not to be. The Goths were not ready to meekly submit, and an army had made its way from Ravenna down into Dalmatia. Although the battle which followed was inconclusive, Mundus was killed and his army withdrew to seek further instructions. Soon after that, a mutiny broke out amongst the imperial troops in Africa, which we will deal with in another episode. However, it forced Belisarius to leave Sicily and head for Carthage. 
Theodahad suddenly recovered his nerve and arrested the imperial ambassadors. By the time Belisarius returned to Sicily, winter was setting in. The chance to swiftly conquer Italy was gone. The Goths were now preparing to protect the land that they had come to call home. Justinian underestimated the task ahead of him. The swift victory over the Vandals bred overconfidence at the same time that imperial resources were stretched. This was the eighth major army that the empire was being asked to provide. Remember that a new force had been created to protect Armenia, and troops were needed in Africa to guard the province from the Moors. Belisarius had barely 8,000 men at his command, less than half the number he'd led into Africa. Nevertheless, when spring 536 arrived, the general was ordered to invade. He crossed the Straits of Messina and made his way up the peninsula. Once more there was little resistance to his advance, as the Goths hadn't concentrated forces in the south. However, with each town that was taken, Belisarius's force shrank in size, as each outpost needed its own garrison. When the army reached Naples, the largest city in the south, Belisarius was facing a major problem. The city walls were large, and with such a small force, it would be impossible to besiege them for long. Adding to his difficulties was the disposition of the Italian people. In Africa, the Vandals had alienated the Roman populace in a way which the Goths hadn't. The people of Naples had little incentive to help the invaders, particularly not the city's Jews, who were well aware of Justinian's oppressive religious policies. Worse still, when the Neapolitans looked down over the battlements, the sight they were greeted with was not an encouraging one. About half of Belisarius's men were barbarian mercenaries, a large company of Isaurians, along with some Huns and Moors. The majority of regular troops were needed elsewhere, and Belisarius had to send a message into the city, warning that he would not be able to prevent his troops from sacking it once they were in. Of course, that seemed an empty threat at this point. The Byzantines badly needed a safe port to operate from if supplies and fresh troops were to be brought in. But after twenty days of the siege, Belisarius was ready to give up and risk advancing with an enemy city to his rear. But as seems to happen to the great generals, Lady Luck found him just in time. After cutting the aqueducts to the city, one of the Isaurian soldiers had been amazed by the construction and gone exploring. He stumbled upon an opening which led into the city. It was too small for a man, but Belisarius seized on the opportunity. He noisily attacked the other side of the city while his men widened the gap. That night, 400 men crawled inside Naples, killed the guards, and the city was stormed. As he'd warned, though, his troops began sacking the city, and it took a couple of days to bring them under control. The sight of pagan Huns looting churches was the worst kind of PR for the restoration of imperial rule. It was still a significant victory for Belisarius, and the Gothic leadership were spooked into abandoning their king. Theodahad was killed, and the general Vitiges took his place. 
the apparently unstoppable imperial army led Vitigis to conclude that he should abandon Rome and regroup in the north. Mundus's replacement in Illyricum, Constantinianus, had reoccupied Silona and driven the Gothic army back to Ravenna. Vitigis headed there as well, where he married Amalasuntha's daughter, Matasuntha, in a bid for legitimacy. He also paid off the Franks in gold and land to stop their advance. The retreat gave Belisarius the chance to seize Rome. He stayed in Naples until December in order to receive a papal invitation, which was clearly vital in securing the cooperation of the populace. Once the invitation arrived, Belisarius led 5,000 men north and entered the Eternal City. For the first time in 60 years, the Roman Empire included Rome. The keys to the city were sent along with a captured Gothic chieftain to Constantinople, where they were displayed before Justinian. Although the campaign had been a success so far, Belisarius knew that he had taken things as far as he could. The Goths could still field full armies, while in order to hold what he had taken, the Byzantine general had had to divide his forces into many small detachments. All that the general could now do was hold the city and wait for Justinian to send more troops. Vitiges sent a force to attack Salona and keep the army of Illyricum tied down, and then gathered the majority of his men and made straight for Rome. The Gothic king had to leave garrisons spread around key towns too, but probably had an army of 15,000 with which he planned to besiege the city. Belisarius spent the two months before the Goths arrived preparing. He was able to bring grain up from Sicily and stored as much water and food as he could. The Aurelian walls still stood firmly around the city, but had to be checked for any weak points and hastily repaired. If 5,000 men were going to defend 12 miles of circuit walls, they would need every inch covered, and a moat was dug outside to further hamper attacks. Rome was a city of perhaps 80,000 at this time. Once it became clear that they were in for a siege, those who could fled, while a delegation asked Belisarius to leave. The general would not, of course. In PR terms, the Byzantines had reclaimed land for the empire, and Rome would now be defended as such. Strategically, Belisarius wasn't in a bad position either. Although he was badly outnumbered, he held the far more pleasant situation of living inside warm buildings as opposed to camping outside in the cold winter. By mid-February, the Gothic army reached the outskirts of the city. Belisarius had left a small garrison guarding a watchtower on the Anien River, but upon seeing Vitigi's army, the men fled without warning. The next morning, Belisarius led a thousand cavalry out to check the area and was surprised to be met by the Gothic vanguard. Fierce fighting followed, and the Goths recognized Belisarius's horse, directing their attacks toward him. As Belisarius returned to the city, covered in dust and gore, the men on guard didn't recognize him and initially refused to let him in. The Goths were in hot pursuit, and the general had to risk launching a charge at his pursuers 
which drove them off before he could remove his helmet and get his men back inside. Procopius doesn't report what he said to the offending guardsmen, but it's possible he commended their caution. He can't have had long to remonstrate with them, though, as he hastily rushed around the walls of the city, double-checking every post and preparing his men for what was to come. Vitiges surrounded the city. Rome had fourteen gates, but the Goths set up only seven entrenched camps, all to the north, with one on the west of the Tiber, where the Vatican now stands. You can see the layout of the siege on the map at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. The Goths would have had men patrolling the south, but to set up camp there would have left them exposed to Byzantine units in the south of the country, taking them by surprise. The capture of Naples was absolutely key in preventing the Goths from entirely suffocating Rome. Vitiges cut all eleven aqueducts, although during the siege this had little effect on the thirst of the populace, who still had the Tiber and a number of wells to draw from. It did mean, though, that the city's corn mills stopped turning. Belisarius quickly improvised. He moored two boats in the Tiber, with mills on them two feet apart, and suspended a water wheel between them. The current turned the wheel, the corn was made into flour, and the citizens got their bread. The Romans copied this ingenious design and soon set up enough to feed everyone. The Goths tried to break the mills by tossing trees and corpses into the water, but Belisarius stretched an iron chain across the river, which caught any debris. After 18 days, Vitiges launched a concerted attack on the walls. The main thrust focused on the Salarian Gate, with large towers and battering rams. The spectacle of the advancing war machines was terrifying, but Belisarius openly laughed in an attempt to keep his men's spirits high. In the event, his laughter may have been genuine, as the towers relied on men and oxen to pull them into place. The Byzantine archers targeted both, and soon the towers were rendered useless. However, attacks on the other side of the city were more successful. At the Porta Aurelia, the old mausoleum of Hadrian had been turned into a fortress and incorporated into the walls. The Gothic soldiers managed to climb up it, but were eventually driven off when the Byzantines hurled the marble statues off the roof. Multiple attacks failed that day, as the walls proved too high and Belisarius's men too organised. As the Goths began to retreat, Belisarius ordered a general sortie. His cavalry poured out of the gates, slaying any besiegers within reach and burning the siege weapons to ashes. That night the Byzantines sang songs of victory and stripped armour from the Gothic dead. But Belisarius knew that things were only going to get tougher for all concerned. He wrote once more to Justinian, asking for reinforcements. The emperor had already sent some under two generals who were wintering in Greece and now began to gather more. Belisarius also sent all the women, children, slaves and servants of Rome down to Naples to relieve the pressure on provisions. The remaining men in the city, the artisans and tradesmen, were drafted into the army and paid a small wage to encourage their loyalty. 
Vitigis settled in to starve his enemy out, and the key for Belisarius was vigilance. Every night he put different men in charge of those guarding the fortifications. It was their duty to check that every man on watch was in his post and report any who didn't show up. Musicians were ordered to play around the walls at night to keep everyone alert, and detachments regularly patrolled the moat. Twice in a short period of time, Belisarius destroyed all the locks and keys of the gates and had new ones made. Nothing could be left to chance. The general knew that he couldn't just sit inside the walls either. He had to make the enemy suffer, and he had to keep his soldiers busy. The great advantage of the imperial army was, as ever, the skill of its cavalry. Belisarius ordered regular attacks on any isolated Goths, and the ferocious Moors and Huns were particularly effective. In a rage over these attacks, Vitiges ordered the execution of the Roman senators who were being held hostage in Ravenna. He also seized control of Portus, which deprived the Byzantines of easy communication by sea. Portus was a more valuable port than Ostia at this time because it had a towpath where barges could be pulled by oxen, where Ostia required supplies to come up the river, which depended on the wind. Boats trying to reach Belisarius would now have to put in a day away and run the Gothic blockade. By April, though, the generals Valerian and Martinus arrived with 1,600 cavalry recruited from amongst the Slavs and Bulgars. Belisarius agreed to fight the Goths outside the walls now that the numbers were a little more even. He launched attacks either side of the Tiber. On the plain of Nero, near the Vatican-based camp, the cavalry was supported by an improvised infantry made of citizens, servants and sailors, most of whom didn't have proper armour and who were arrayed like a phalanx in the rearguard. Meanwhile, outside the Salarian Gate, Belisarius wanted to lead a cavalry-only assault. He was persuaded by two of his slighted household guards, Principius and Tomatus, to allow another volunteer infantry division to march behind them and provide cover. For most of the day, the Byzantines drove the Goths back. As had been the case with the Vandals, the Goths had no answer to the mounted bowmen. With spear and shield, the Goths relied on the charge, something it's not easy to do when Huns are shooting arrows at your face. On the plain of Nero, the Goths were driven so far back that the inexperienced infantry began to plunder their camp in disarray. The Goths rallied and charged down on the amateur troops, causing chaos as they fled back to the city. Awareness of this reverse spread across the river, and the Goths there mounted a charge, which drove Belisarius's men back as well. The losses could have been catastrophic, but the infantry around Principius and Tomatus held firmly and delayed the Goths long enough to save their commander. Principius and Tomatus paid for their loyalty with their lives, and Belisarius refused to countenance another attack outside the walls. Instead, he returned to the hit-and-run tactics that could slowly wear the Goths down. Vitiges tightened his grip on the city. He sent men further south where they could more effectively cut off supplies that had been sneaking in from Capua or up the Tiber. 
By June, the city was suffering from disease and a shortage of food. A black market in sausages made from mules had sprung up. The atmosphere was tense and panicked. Even the people of Rome were asking Belisarius if they could die fighting in open battle rather than starving in their empty homes. Belisarius refused, though, and maintained an unflagging public enthusiasm and insisted that supplies and soldiers were on their way from Constantinople, even when we know from Procopius that the general was far from certain of such things. Of course, life was no better for the Goths. Living in tents in the Italian summer might be bearable, but imagine having to dig your own toilets and living next to them for months on end. As time went by, troops had to forage further and further away, and while their comrades were off gathering food, Belisarius would spot the weakness in the line and launch his Huns at you. The ground of the camps trodden daily underfoot quickly turned to mud, and disease spread amongst the ranks of the Goths. It wasn't until November that the extra reinforcements finally arrived at Naples. 5,000 troops, including 1,800 more cavalry, under the command of John, a nephew of our favourite old rebel, Vitalian. The new force moved up the coast along the Via Appia, and Belisarius launched raiding parties on the Gothic camps to prevent Vitiges from blocking their arrival. Belisarius had walled up the Flaminian Gate at the start of the siege, but now removed the bricks. A thousand horsemen attacked the Gothic camp the next morning, drawing them near to the city, and then once they had passed the gate, a detachment raced out and surprised them, causing heavy losses. At the sight of this, and the arrival of the reinforcements, Vitiges sued for peace. He would offer Sicily, he would offer Naples, anything to get the Byzantines to end the war. Belisarius deferred to Justinian, and a truce was called while the peace offer was sent to Constantinople. Although, if true, Belisarius gave a beautifully sarcastic offer that he was very happy for the Goths to occupy the former Roman province of Britain. The three-month truce was a disaster for the Goths. Ships arrived from Naples and brought fresh men and supplies into the city, Belisarius probably had an army of around 10,000 to call on at this point, and he sent John north to fall on the region of Picenum if the Goths tried to break the truce. Vitiges found it hard to watch his enemy grow stronger while he waited interminably for a message to traverse the empire. The Gothic king attempted the same trick Belisarius had used at Naples, but his men's tools were found in one of the aqueducts. Giving up on the truce, he launched assaults on the Porta Pinciana and across the Tiber, but both came to nothing. Meanwhile, news reached John that the truce was off, and his force of 2,000 cut off Picenum, disrupting supplies coming south. However, John disobeyed his orders, which included the instruction to leave no enemy fortifications in his rear. He bypassed two Gothic strongholds before the citizens of Ariminum, which was only 33 miles from Ravenna, opened their gates to him. Matasuntha, whose sympathies lay with her dead mother and not her new husband, opened negotiations with John, which seriously alarmed Vitiges. 
in mid-March 538, the king burnt his camps and headed north. One year and nine days after it began, the siege was over. Belisarius refused to miss an opportunity. He waited until half of the Gothic army was over the Milvian Bridge and then launched a general attack. Many Goths were cut down or swept into the river. The rest of the Gothic army was allowed to limp north and the gates of Rome were opened once more. The epic siege was a personal triumph for Belisarius. His intelligence, will and bravery were noted by those serving under him, and a less sensitive commander might well have alienated the Roman population. It's tempting to assume that the general would have received a good press no matter what, given that the historian we rely on was in his pay. However, Procopius pulls few punches, making it clear that it was other men who saved the general during the open battle, and criticising him harshly in the secret history. Belisarius's good qualities cannot be ignored, though, and presents us with a very familiar story for the Roman Empire. One man just can't run everything. Augustus needed Agrippa. Diocletian needed Maximian. Justinian needed Belisarius. Without such a competent and loyal commander, the reconquest might well have already failed. In two weeks' time, the campaign continues, with the issues of competence and loyalty coming right to the fore. For the citizens of Rome, the siege was no triumph. If either the Goths or the Byzantines were destined to emerge triumphant and strengthened from this war, then perhaps the aqueducts would have been repaired. As it was, they never were. A thousand years of public baths and fountains came to an end. The harbours were damaged, the streets were empty, men had been killed or reduced to beggary. For the Italians, who stood between two armies at war, things were only going to get worse. For those interested, there is a new Facebook page called Byzantium, a Roman body, a Greek mind and a mystic soul which listener Rob has set up to explore the empire. And recently I took part in a history podcaster's roundtable discussing the most significant event since the Second World War. You can find more details at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.